kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 16, verses 28 through 40. I'll begin reading in verse 25 for context. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them, and they brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So when they went out from the prison and entered the house of Lydia, when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. We ended our last study in a precarious moment. A man was literally about to throw himself on his own sword and end his life. The situation that brought this about had to do with the Apostle Paul and his co-laborer Silas. These two had been arrested after Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl, and on false charges they had been stripped naked and severely publicly beaten before being thrown into a dungeon and placed in stocks to await some further action the next day. Though this review of those events is brief and simple, it was an extremely distressing, and to use the words of Paul himself describing it on a later occasion, an outrageous thing that took place. And it was possible that the next day they would be killed, unless the inflamed public sentiments against them somehow cooled overnight. By our calculations, it was the Sabbath day when all this transpired, and there was a span of between nine to fifteen hours between their arrest, the beating, and the imprisonment, and Luke's taking up of the story again at midnight. At midnight, Paul and Silas were doing something unexpected for men in their situation, at least from an earthly or worldly point of view. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake. We determined that this earthquake was sent by God and was a sign of his presence with the suffering believers, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Now back to where we left off. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. The penalty for a guard allowing his charge to escape was death. In fact, we saw this happen once before, even when the escape of the prisoner was obviously miraculous in Acts 12 and 19. And it would likely be a painful and a shameful form of execution, the kind the prisoner himself might have suffered had he not gotten away, followed by a lasting social stigma against the surviving family. So this man determined to spare himself or his loved ones any prolonged grief and to give the impression that those who had escaped had killed him in a jailbreak following the freakish seismic upheaval. Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. There is in this scene a remarkable example of Christian charity. One of the men who had abused Paul and Silas unjustly is about to die by his own hand because he thinks it would be a better fate than what he anticipates his future will hold. Although he's mistaken, if he were to die, one might call it poetic justice. Certainly few, if any, would have held Paul responsible, just as we do not hold Peter responsible for the death of the guards who were watching him that night that an angel delivered him out of Herod's prison. But Paul discerning somehow in the dim light that was available to him what was about to happen, hurriedly intervened to save his oppressor's life. In Matthew 5, 43-45, Jesus said, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and abuse you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Here is the principle of kingdom living on glorious display. Please, although you had harmed me and my friend, do yourself no harm. One remarkable thing about this narrative is that the other prisoners who were not disciples of Jesus did not flee and kill the jailer themselves when they had the chance. We are all here, cried Paul. There have been various suggestions as to why they did not, but it is difficult to accept any other conclusion than that the hand of God was in it somehow. This whole scene was divinely orchestrated with one great purpose in mind, a purpose that will soon be revealed. Verse 29, Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. They're still in the inner prison, but circumstances have radically changed. When Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples, who had previously been afraid of the storm, were suddenly afraid of Jesus. Before, the jailer feared because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But now he trembles and falls before these prisoners, who could bring about such marvelous things and yet would remain calmly in the prison. What kind of God must they serve? And he brought them out, 
The Western text says that first he secured the other prisoners back in their cells within their chains. Uh, Like most of the other additional material in that production, it's just a supposition of what most likely happened. And like much of the additional material, there's no reason to suspect that it is not right. But the important point is that the jailer did not reinstate the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. He brought them out into the main section of the prison and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Throughout Christian history, Bible readers and teachers have called this the greatest question ever asked. It has become a title for countless sermons, tracts, and books, and how it should be answered has become the source of nearly countless divisions and disputes among professing Christians. However, the question itself is challenging. What did the jailer mean? Some commentators think he was speaking merely of his physical security, still concerned that he might be punished or held responsible for the incident with the earthquake. This is not likely at all, however. Paul and Silas, and perhaps God himself, had already saved him, in that regard, by the fact that none of the prisoners had escaped. Rather than a threat, this could now have possibly earned him a promotion. It is true that this man was not a Catholic, nor a Protestant, nor even a Jew. He was at best a pagan Greek. And we might be cynical in regard to his theological understanding of such things as salvation. But remember that the way of salvation was precisely what the slave girl told the people of the city they would find in Paul and Silas's proclamation. True, he probably did not understand much in the way of the Christian doctrines of divine judgment and future punishment and justification, but he understood enough to know that he needed what these people were offering. There was a cosmic power at work behind them that was like nothing he had ever encountered before in the world of Greek paganism. Verse 31, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. It is tragic that the simple, powerful, and beautiful language of Scripture is so often contorted into a battleground for theological disputes it was never intended to settle. Paul and Silas's response, it's noteworthy that Luke says they said this, the implication being that this sentence was not simply an abruptly blurted answer, but it rather constitutes a perfect summary of what the two evangelists explained over time to this man as they spoke to him. But it truly is a perfect summary of the Christian message concerning salvation. It cannot be criticized, and properly understood, it cannot be improved upon any more than Jesus' summary of God's plan for human redemption in John 3.16. The gospel is the revelation of God's power to save everyone who believes, says Paul in Romans 1 and 16. The message of Christ is the justification for the sinner comes through pardon on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ and on the condition of faith. So the question is not whether Paul and Silas's statement is sufficient. The question is, what does this statement mean? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Belief on or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ fundamentally involves three features, knowledge, trust, 
and loyalty. Knowledge, in the corollary expression mental assent, means simply that you must learn something and accept the truth of it as a part of the process of believing it, and it is necessary to become acquainted with at least some facts and propositions about Jesus in order to believe in him or on him. Paul says in Romans 10.14, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And concludes in verse 17, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Knowledge and assent is not all there is to faith, but it is a vital component. What is the content of the knowledge one must learn and accept to believe on Jesus and be pardoned of your sins? It is the principal facts and propositions concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ himself, who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, what he has done, especially in his death, resurrection, and ascension, what he is doing, especially in his rule and reign from heaven. Note that Paul said the lordship of Jesus was an essential part of saving faith, and what he will do when he comes again to fully accomplish his work of redemption. Trust means the personal appropriation of this knowledge into one's own life. It is so seamlessly connected with repentance that it is difficult to see where the one ends and the other begins, When one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting fully in him with all one's heart, this necessitates a personal turning to him, which is the meaning of the word repentance, as one's own prophet, priest, and king. Those concepts are fundamental to the idea of messiahship. So faith is born out of knowledge, it actualizes in personal trust, and it is perfected in loyalty or allegiance. This process is explicitly spelled out by Paul in Romans 10:14. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? From knowledge to trust to calling on the name of the Lord. We've seen that phrase before, and we've already established that it carries the idea of allegiance or loyalty to Jesus. It is an action of the whole person, heart, mouth, knee, and body. Acts 22.16 teaches that it begins with baptism in water, and in that event our sins are pardoned by our union with the death of Jesus. But calling on the name of the Lord is much more than merely baptism. It is the newness of life that follows afterward. It is the ever-intensifying, all-consuming presentation of one's whole self as a living sacrifice to God, resulting in transformation into the image of Christ himself. If we put all of these three components of knowledge, trust, and allegiance together, then it is perhaps better and well within the range of the definition for the word used by the apostles here in Acts 16.31 and elsewhere to say that we are justified by faithfulness. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Well, what does believing on the Lord Jesus Christ demand? Relentless, all-consuming, enduring faithfulness. Does the narrative which follows support this suggestion? Verse 32, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Evidently, between verse 31 and the event here described, the jailer took them out of the prison and into his home. 
We have no way of knowing where he lived or what was involved in his transfer. His house may have been attached to the jail. But he brought Paul and Silas to his house because in their first announcement to them, they promised not only his own salvation, but the salvation of his house as well. His household, that is. This kind of promise would have no propriety or strength if those who God saves were made of an arbitrary and predestinated number of elect ones. There's a limitation in the gospel message of salvation. It is only to those who believe. But there is also a universality. It is to everyone that believes, and anyone may believe, not only you, but all your household. The word of the Lord that Paul and Silas preached to them was the message of Jesus that would give them all they needed to know to believe fully on him. Verse 33, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. First, as a beautiful manifestation of repentance, he washed them and tended to the wounds that he and his neighbors had inflicted on them in ignorance. And then in turn, they washed him. Acts 22.16 says that in baptism our sins are washed away. Peter says that baptism is not like the ministry of the jailer to the brethren. It is not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter 3.21. You see, it has everything to do with that question, what must I do to be saved? Baptism in water is a part of the answer. This is one more case of family or household baptism, and historically it has generated the same controversies with speculations over the implications that it might or might not have about the issue of infant baptism. This case, however, is more conclusive than the others because here Luke explicitly says that the same family who was baptized first heard the word of the Lord, verse 32, and then believed it, verse 34. If there were infants in the household, they are necessarily excluded from the group here mentioned who was baptized. And that accords with the testimony of primitive church history that infant baptism was not practiced for the first three centuries of the Christian church. Furthermore, it accords with the general theology of the Bible that infants do not stand in need of baptism because they are already in the kingdom of God by virtue of their moral innocence. Verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, evidently he took them somewhere to wash them and for he and his family to be baptized, and now they have returned, and he set food before them. He has shown them respect and mercy. Now he adds the virtue of hospitality. And he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. You see that indeed the narrative presents faith as a complex thing. The jailer's faith was very active. It involved listening, learning, washing, being washed, feeding, and rejoicing. And in the typical style that we've seen over and over again, his joy followed his baptism. It has been observed that there was a jailbreak in Philippi that night, but the prisoner who escaped was this very jailer, set free by Christ from the prison of sin and death. And thank God this prisoner did not remain in the cell, but fled to follow Jesus. In the words of Charles Wesley, 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. It must have been exceedingly difficult for him to do so, but the language indicates that the jailer had returned Paul and Silas to their prison cell after he had fed them and cared for them, though it's possible that he did not return them to the dungeon, but rather secured them in a more comfortable holding. In the standard text of Acts, we are left to wonder why the magistrates decided to release Paul and Silas. However, the Western text again makes explicit what some have assumed that everyone in town felt the earthquake, and the leaders of the city took it as a bad omen and a sign that they should not abuse these men any more. That's certainly possible. It's also possible that they had intended all along to mistreat them to a degree that might inspire them to just leave the city so that peace would be restored. However, if that was their plan, it did not work. Verse 36. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. I noted in an earlier study that Silas, like Paul, was a Roman citizen. This is where we learn that detail. On occasion, we will find him called Silvanus, which is a Latin name, and that might suggest a Roman background for him. Roman citizenship had its great advantages within the empire. For one thing, as Paul indicated, it was illegal for Romans to be beaten or treated in a degrading way. One may wonder why Paul and Silas did not invoke their citizenship earlier to prevent the beating and the arrest altogether, But it's possible that they did not have the opportunity, and that's what Paul means when he says that he and Silas were uncondemned, or literally, without a trial. The reason Paul now demands that his release be as public as his trial is so that the stigma that the previous ordeal might have attached to the Christians in the minds of the community could be removed. Paul would not leave town until it was made clear who the real troublemakers were and that the Christians should not be oppressed as though they were supporters of criminals. Verse 38. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them, and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Evidently, whatever took place here was satisfactory to Paul and Silas. Once again, the Western text fills in the gaps and says... They brought a large number of people to meet Paul and Silas and publicly apologized and confessed that they were righteous men. Once again, while it cannot be conclusively established, that is most likely what happened. Verse 40, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. If we are correct in our chronological inferences, this is the Lord's day the first day of the week. In Acts 20 and 7, we find mention that the disciples came together on this day to eat the Lord's Supper and to worship in the sacred assembly. If we are right, then, we may assume that they met with Lydia and the other Christians there for worship one last time before leaving. 
and that would certainly fit the language Luke uses here. Most likely, the jailer and his family came along with them. Mark Moore noted that just as they baptized the jailer after he had washed their stripes, here it is likely that they ate the Lord's Supper with him after he had fed them in his own home. God meets our efforts to do good and honor with great spiritual blessings. There was now in Philippi, the Roman colony, a congregation of Christ, what Paul in Philippians 3 and 20 would call a colony of heaven. The advantages afforded to the citizens of Philippi were great, but they paled in comparison to those given to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Philippi had long stood as a monument of the victory of Rome, but now it would become a monument to the victory of Christ and a center for his ever-increasing conquest of the world. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, seething races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.